So I hope you were here last weekend because this message will mean even more to you if you have heard the first message. They're not part one and part two. They're actually two completely different things. Um, but uh, it will mean a lot more when you know which lens you're looking through, whether it's your moral lens or whether it's your redemptive lens. Um, so we, I have titled this one, Made for a Relationship. Um, and hopefully that's going to make a lot of sense as I go through this message. I'm going to end up in First Peter today, but it's going to take us a little bit to get there. Um, and there's going to be many scriptures along the way to set it all up before we dive in. So, when COVID entered into this mighty fine world, like many, I discovered what isolation truly felt like and what um, not having your people, you know, around felt like. And I believe many people got to feel like that. I think some people are actually still stuck in that spot and haven't quite come out of it yet. And I pray that you do. Um, but one thing, especially at the very beginning of the pandemic, like in the first six or seven months, I was exhausted. Um, which made no sense in some ways. I'm, I bet you, maybe some of you can relate to me. But I wanted to gain back. I had this moment in prayer that I just wanted to gain back my strength, my energy, and excitement for life no matter what was going to happen during COVID. Right? I just made this decision. So I was hoping that I wasn't getting too old to try something new. So I joined a CrossFit gym, which I have some pictures there. Now, there tends to be only two categories, two main categories, with the thought behind CrossFit. So we'll see which one you kind of fall in. Um, one is that it's amazing, right? You hear them talk about it, best shape of your life, best thing to be part of, everyone should do it. And the second one is, that's a cult, I want nothing to do with it. It's kind of those two things. There might be one other that would be, I really don't care, or I really don't understand it. I don't, you know, it could be that. Or if you're like a chiropractor or a massage therapist, you probably think gold mine. So that would be the only other thing. Um, but I love it. I absolutely love my time there, and I love the people. This, to me, is not just a gym, okay? I know none of these pictures make sense to you. But it's not just a place that I go to work out, okay? I've traveled with some of these people and only known them a couple years. I have done funerals for some of their parents. I'm marrying a couple of them this, week, this summer. They send me messages of encouragement, right? Not the other way around. These people have become my people. We have fun together. We have competitions together. We show up for each other. The reason I bring this up is not to convince you to join CrossFit. I bring it up because I believe that they've tapped in to a deeper reality than they even know. Because here's the thing that makes CrossFit work. It's not the workout itself. It's that they've tapped into the fact that God designed us as relational creatures and where, there, where there's relationality, people will come. And I'm not saying they're Christian-based. I'm saying they figured this out. They figured out where there is relation and you are part of something that you show up. So, it's got its own language, just like all of you do. 
And you're saying, what, we don't have our own language? Yes, you do. 10 years ago when I walked into this church, it took me a while to figure out what some of the things you guys were saying, right? You have your own language. Now, CrossFit has like code words and acronyms and names that have deeper meanings and names that honor people and soldiers and different things. Like if you came up to somebody who does CrossFit, and there's many CrossFitters at this church, I would probably say, 25% of our congregation, so some people might know what this is, but if you came up to them and said, what's your Fran time or what's your Cindy time? They can answer that question. That makes sense to them. If you don't know CrossFit, you're like, what are you even talking about, your Fran time and your Cindy time, right? When I first joined it, I couldn't even understand what workout meant because they called everything wads. Like, I didn't know what that meant. I would read the workout and it would say like AMRAP and EMON and all these weird words, but see, we do that too. <laughs> we do that too. So one of my very first classes, I was early, and the class before me was just finishing up. And if you've done CrossFit, you know that the last 10 minutes of the workout is where you're pushing the hardest, right? Um, so they were, pushing as hard as they possibly could. They looked like they were going to die. They are like, seriously, this is being, not being totally dramatic, but sometimes you like taste blood and you're not sure if it's your blood or if it's the person <laughs> besides your blood and you, you question yourself, is this even healthy? Should I even be doing this? Like, am I stretching myself way too far? Um, but they pick themselves up and they do like a million double under skipping with a thousand pounds on their back and you know, throw in some box jumps and maybe even lift a car because it's like looked that insane to me when I was watching it, right? And I looked at them and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, they're absolutely crazy. There's like no way I could possibly ever do any of that. But see, when I sat there, you saw this like dedication, this dedication to the sport, this dedication to the fitness and to each other because there was this community. So what I saw in my very first one was somebody had hit their PR, which is their like personal record, right? So another initial that I needed to learn. Everyone rejoices. And when I say everyone rejoices, okay, they're freaking out like they all did it together. They're freaking out like they all did it together, right? And if they fail, they were so quick to kind of like circle around each other and encourage each other. Tell them to keep moving, to keep trying. And if you know anything about me, community is deep, deep, deep inside of me. So this really appealed to me. They encourage you to have a healthy lifestyle, not just at the gym, but like outside of the gym, right? They would talk about food and drinks that aren't good for you, ones that are bad for you. They talked about sleep and stress and mental health and being part of a community. They encouraged us all to volunteer and to give back to our areas. They were talking about vitamins, just basically trying to make you healthier and better. It was not just, it's not just a workout class. Once they had this class in an area to make your own condiments, okay? It, that's not my thing or my stage of life that I'm gonna make my own mayo. Like it's just not, but if you do, that's all good. But there were 60 people there. Like they had to bring in extra chairs for the mayo class. Like 
I'm trying to get people to come to the church and pray. And you can get 60 people to come and make mail, right? Like, this is blowing my mind, right? Like, it's blowing my mind. And then I'd been there for like about a year, and I decided to volunteer for one of their events that they were having. And within three days, they had 50 people sign up to volunteer for the event for the entire weekend, all day long. Like from 6 a.m. in the morning till four at night on Saturday and Sunday. In two days, they had 50 people. And I can't get children's workers once a month for two hours. And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty or to guilt you into anything, right? But all I can say is they've tapped into something special to get these people so involved and so excited about it, right? They've tapped into this desperate need of the humankind to belong. To belong to something bigger, to belong to something greater, to have goals, to be healthier, to belong to something much bigger than an individual. See, this is rooted in our design. In fact, I would argue that's rooted in the essence of God himself. Not CrossFit, but relationality, relationships. So that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to talk about it in the way that it's your destiny. And when I use that word, I'm saying, because that word gets used a lot, I'm saying God's design and purpose for your life, right? The reason God designed you like he designed you, the way that he made you, that's what destiny is. It's found and formed, which I'm going to show you, in the family of faith. So I'm going to pull this thread that kind of goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and honestly can be seen all the way into the end of Revelation and see what God's up to. So we're going to start today where you should always start, in the beginning. So Genesis 1.26, if you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen, or you can grab your books and take tons and tons and tons of notes. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and, over the, and all over the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. There are scholars that will argue who is the us here speaking. I'm not going to share all the arguments, but I'm going to share the one that I lean towards that this is the Godhead in conversation with himself. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. Uh, there are scholars that would say no, but I think it makes the most sense in the context of the greater story that is, God is in dialogue with God to create mankind in his image. And let me tell you why I think that's a big deal. The Trinity... So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is not some kind of like obscured, obscured, weird theology that doesn't apply to us today. It has everything to do with you and me today. 
See, the Trinity and the relationality of God actually projects to you and me in 2022 that the creator God of the universe didn't create everything in some big power play where he now rules with great power and might, despite that he is all-powerful. It shows us that woven in the fabric of the universe is relationality and relationship. That God exists as God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one, and out of that overflow of that loving relationship, the universe is born. You tracking with me? So that God is in relationship with God, and out of the overflow of that relationship, everything that exists, exists. It is not that God, out of just this power and might, created people that he was going to rule with an iron fist. If you believe that, that's how you will interact with God. And you'll be interacting with God in the wrong way. Because it's out of the overflow of his own gladness within himself that he creates everything that exists. And now I'm going to show you that. So, we have Adam here, right? And Adam's live in the dream. He's got self-anatomy, he's self-realized, he's actualized, and he kind of can just do whatever he wants. He's alone, right? He can eat when he wants, he can roam around when he wants, um, he can go for dinner when he wants, he can eat what he wants. Um, and Adam has been given a ton of authority by God as well because he's now naming the animals, right? In fact, I would say at this point, he's got all the authority over the creative order, which God's just kind of handed to him. So then in Genesis, until God says this, in Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So what we are so desperate for right now in 2022, God looks at before sin even gets involved. Sin hasn't entered yet. Eve's not there. The serpent hasn't whispered anything into her ear yet. Nothing is broken. No sin. Adam cannot image the relationality of God without some horizontal relationship. So he's got this vertical relationship, but God looks at Adam and says, hey, okay, nobody's sinned here, but this isn't good. You cannot, you cannot be my image bearers if you are not in relationality. And so God creates the woman, and then it flows from there. So now we're going to look at Genesis 12. And if you're like, oh my goodness, she's only at Genesis 12, and we've got to get all the way to 1 Peter, don't worry. I'm going to skip like massive chunks soon, okay? We're going to get there. But Genesis 12 is important. You need to read it in the context of the story of Genesis, okay? So if you don't know it, I'm going to give you a little snippet here. So God creates... Sin enters, fractures the cosmos, and then humankind goes wild. I mean, the kind of wild that might even be hard for some of us to even wrap our heads around. Children, children being sacrificed, grotesque, perverse, wicked, evil. And so God floods the earth. Many of you might know the story of Noah and the ark. He floods the earth, wipes it out, and then what happens? Noah comes out, starts over, and then humankind does what humankind does. We go right back to worshiping false idols, go right back to serving their own gods. Go right back to evil. 
And this time, humankind's like, no, 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 no. We're going to build a tower to heaven. And they build the Tower of Babel. And this is when God confuses their language. And according to Genesis 11, disperses them across the earth. And so get this, the judgment, some people like to use the word punishment, but judgment that is befalling on humankind again, here's what the judgment is. I'm going to not let you understand each other. That's the judgment. I'm going to let you not understand each other. I'm going to disperse you and make you other nations and other people groups and send you to the four corners of the earth. Separate you all. And then you get to Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, who will be Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I shall show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So... To see God's plan, God creates us in his image, in relationality. He creates Adam and says, this is not good. Gives him a woman. Then the woman and the man get to know each other. That's the wording that they use. Kids start to happen. And then you've got the flood. We've got Noah. And then we've got this disbursement of people to the ends of the earth. And then what does God, who doesn't rule by power alone, but in relationality, how does he approach this? He comes to Abram and says, I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you a people. And that, those people are going to be blessed, and those people are going to bless all the people. So what I just dispersed, I'm going to regather. And I'm going to gather them through you who becomes Father Abraham. So the next passage that I'm about to read is a lens in which I'm truly trying to see the world. It's one of my actually favorite ones in the Old Testament. I know a lot of people don't have favorite ones in the Old Testament, but I do. And this is one of them. Um, many of you are going to know it. Um, so God comes to Moses and says, I have heard the cry of my people, the deep cry of my people. I want you to go to Pharaoh, we all know this story, right? The plagues. And tell them to let my people go. And then you got this kind of cosmic battle between the gods of Egypt, like the little G gods, and our creator, big G, God of universe. So each one of those plagues, this is really cool. I don't know if you know this. You probably do, and I'm the last one to know. But... The, the, each one of those plagues were corresponding to an Egyptian god. That's cool. So that God is not only freeing his people, but he was showing the world that Egyptian gods are no gods. Then he leads them across the Red Sea and puts them right on the cusp of the promised land, which was going to situate them between, well, like the world's superpowers at this point. And here's what Moses is told to tell the people of Israel. This is such a good verse. Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples. 
For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So let's unpack this a little bit. What's happening here? God has just said that he's got, so he's got Israel, they've been freed, and they're on this cusp of this real choice piece of land that sits between the world as they knew it. And here's what God said, if you will enter into this covenant with me, you will be my people. And I will show the world what it's like to live under the blessings of the creator God, and not those little G gods that they're all worshiping. You will be, for me, a kingdom of priests, right? So that plan for God, and this is definitely not human wisdom here, God's plan is not you as a person, but us as a people. Are you following me? Us as a people. That's why Christianity starts to break down if you make it about what I talked about last week, about being more moral than it is about surrendering God's purposes, surrendering to God's purposes and plans. Why? Because morality makes you gaze on yourself, right? It makes the faith all about you. Oh man, if I just wouldn't do this and I would do that, instead of getting your eyes on him looking at you and practicing this relationality that exists in the Godhead. The reason we're all in the room right now is because of this narrative. Because God is making people, not person. People. You do have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, 100% yes. But it's within the context of people. You try to pull it out of that context, the Bible knows nothing of it. So when you hear people, or maybe you say this, just let me love Jesus and I don't need others, that is just not true. This is an invention of the modern culture, right? It just is. So here's what happens. We're going to talk about Jesus now. So I'm jumping from Exodus all the way to the New Testament. Because the rest of the Old Testament is people, the people of God coming in and out and in and out of this promise, right? And it turns into a giant mess and then Jesus shows up and then there's this amazing conversation that he has in Matthew 14, 46, which sometimes is really hard to read because <laughs> it says the same word a lot. So while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, so this is Jesus that we're talking about, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Okay, that's weird. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of, the fa of my father in the heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay. It sounds weird. I don't know who your mom and brother and sisters are, but I'm gonna tell you about mine, okay? So if Yvette, Shireen, Latar, and Gareth showed up here at the church and I was in my office and said, I would like to speak to Yasmin, to whoever's out there, Jill or Tracy or, or Don, and they came into my office and said, Yasmin, I'm so sorry to bother you, but they look like they're on a mission. Like, I know you're busy, but your mom and your sister and your brother are here, and it seems important. 
And I was sitting at my desk and I said, who are my mother and brother and sister? <laughs> exactly, right? Go tell them that these are my mothers and brothers and sisters. I don't think that would go over very well, would it? Or at least our next interaction would be very awkward. But yet Jesus is doing something here that's really hard for us to understand in the 20th century. So let me explain it a little bit. Now there are probably more than this, but there are strong group cultures and weak group cultures. So I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I'll try my best to explain it. So strong group cultures are predominantly, and not limited to, these are just examples, Asian cultures, Indian cultures, Korean cultures, Chinese cultures, okay? They're a strong group culture. And here's what this means. They value the group over the individual so that the family unit is of greater importance than any one of the individuals. It's not, the individual, it's not that the individual's desires and hopes don't matter, it's just that they have to be considered in light of the whole group, the whole community. The community has a greater value than just the individual. Now, weak group cultures say the opposite. We're very much a weak group culture. That the individual and what it desires most and matters most is whatever they want, basically, right? And where there is a community, when the community tries to like invade upon their self-anonymy, it's oppressive and evil and must be exposed for what it is. That's kind of what the narrative is that we live in right now, unfortunately. Um, have you noticed how many people are moving to Canada? Like from different cultures, lots of strong group cultures, they're pouring in, which is absolutely amazing. But I think about what this must do to them when they move here, okay? And I know many actually African families that I talk to that this is the same thing as well. They're coming here, especially their children. Oh my goodness. You want to talk about them getting jammed up when they move here? Like, if you're from a home that's a strong group culture, and your school that you're sending your child to, which is here, is a weak group culture, think about what that does. Right? Think about what it's like to live in a home where they say, hey, you matter, your decision matters, but you're part of us, so we do what's best for us. That's what we're going to do. And you go to school and all you hear is do what's best for you. And I'm not trying to say that strong group culture is better than weak group culture. I don't believe that. There is good and bad in both of them. But I'll tell you this. We're being trained to believe that strong group culture, that family community unit, is oppressive. And that you think of yourself, not the team. That's what we're being trained in. Um, so there is this movie, a couple movies, I'll see which one, well it might age you a little bit depending which one you know, maybe you don't watch movies, but has anyone seen The Big Sick or Bend It Like Beckham? Bend It Like Beckham is an old one. Um, the reason I bring these up is because they're very, very good examples of what I'm talking about. Strong group cultures that move to a weak culture. So whether it's being Indian in the one or Asian in the other, they come to do life in a weak group culture and it tears at the family. 
and the difficulties that they have there and, you know. So the reason I bring all this up, there's a purpose you to understand this passage, is Jesus is living in a time when he said this, that strong group culture is all that there is. That's it. He elevates the disciples in that moment to this group, which is of the most importance, right? And individuals must do what's best for, not the individual, but for the group, which this really flies in the face of, of modern culture, right? Because this would not be what we're being trained and discipled in at this exact moment. Now, let's see what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. So now we're in Acts 2, 42 to 47. I love this scripture too. I'm pretty sure I was the one who preached on it when we did the Acts series. So you may have heard um, this a couple times. And they, de they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So these are the people of God, the family of God teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and sincere or generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So if you have a church background, you're probably really familiar with this text. But there's some real rawness in this text that's really hard for us to, to understand in this century like selling possessions, distributing it to those who had need. There was no, it was all even. Everybody was fed, everybody was together. In this day and age, this would be considered like a cult or these people are super weird, right? If your neighbor was to be doing that, a lot of people would install serious, like, probably security cameras or doorbell cameras or whatever, maybe build a higher fence so that there was some separation between the weird people next door. But see, we kind of did look crazy in the first four centuries, especially us looking from the 20th century, right? Actually, probably started even way sooner than that. But looking at today, in 2022, let's say, that they loved each other in such a way and they really embraced those strong group cultures. They served one another, they loved one another, they encouraged one another, they built one another up in such a way that the world thought it was so strange and they just couldn't even fathom what they were up to. They had their own language, they had their own patterns of the way they did things, they had a way that they treated each other, we loved God and we loved people in a way that if you go back and look over this passage, you see as they loved God and loved one another, what began to happen day by day. Those who were around them are like, oh, this is peculiar. This doesn't make sense. And that it actually drew them near as they joined into the family. See, what we might not understand today is they were... I don't want to use the word governed, but governed, I will say very, very lightly, by these 54, 59-ish one-anothers in the New Testament. 
There's, there's over a hundred times that it says, do this to one another or don't do this to one another, okay? And there's a bunch that repeat themselves, so I can't remember, but it's between 54 and 59 of them. I'm going to show you a bunch of them on the screen. I typed out a few, um, but again, there's a lot more. This... So there's like love one another, serve one another, I'll point out a few, encourage one another, build one another up, undo or outdo one another in honor, Pastor John talks about that a lot, embrace one another, speak life into one another, don't grumble against each other, don't lie to one another, be gracious to one another, be patient to one another. Now I'm not going to read them all, but this is what it meant to be the body of Christ, right here. Like what? Put that on your fridge. Put that on your fridge when you interact with anyone another. And go down the list and take a look and see if you were doing these things with the body of Christ and with people around you. Because this is what it meant to be a family of faith and how they were interacting with each other. So now finally we arrive at 1 Peter 2. Verse 9, and I hope when you leave here today that this verse just like echoes throughout your heart and soul for the remainder of the day. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into marvelous light. So just a few things about this, then I'm going to give you some practical steps on how we're going to practice relationality, okay? A couple of things from this passage I want you to leave with. So one, and we talked a bit about this last week about your identity, but I want you to look at the identity that you and I have that is our primary identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people of his own possession, So my hope is if I didn't shift your mind last week about your perspective of yourself to now and try to do it again. How many of you in this room are really well aware that before Jesus saved you, you were stuck in your sin? I was stuck in my sin before Jesus saved me. We are sinners. Are most of us well aware of that? Now here's how I want to encourage you. Your primary identity, if you are in Christ, is no longer sinner, but saint. I'm not a sinner. I am a sober-minded saint. I am beloved by God. I'm a priest in the kingdom of God. I'm an adopted daughter of the God on high, and I'm going to rest there. And the reason I say sober-minded is because I know I have an enemy that wants to destroy me. I'm not stupid. I'm sober-minded because I know I still have compulsions and things within me that I haven't brought to Jesus yet. But I will not identify myself as a sinner because that Yasmin chick died with Jesus on the cross and this one is now living by faith in the son of God who loves me and gave his life up for me 
Are you with me? Do I sin? God help me. Yes, I do. But is that my identity? Heck no. Because sinner Yasmin, she's dead. She's gone. So anytime that Satan wants to whisper into my ear about my brokenness and my lack of consistency and how much I suck at this and can't do that and whatever other weaknesses that I have, I can heartily agree with him and then thank God that that girl's dead. Take it up with dead Yasmin because this one doesn't care. And because we let him lie to us like that, it takes the weight off of what we're involved in, off of we're a people to, oh, man, I'm struggling. I'm so bad. I'm sinning all the time. It's just like the worst version of Christianity ever, okay? That's what Christ came to save you from, not usher you into it. And I said this last week, there is a moral vision for your life, right? We know this. But guess what? You can't do it without him. But without being in the presence of him, you're never going to be able to get there. You're just not going to be able to do it without him. It's just not going to happen. So we started with that. We talked about that last week about our witness, always being with him. We started by being in his presence and allowing the spirit to transform us and to change us and to change our lives, right? Your primary identity is not sinner. It's not who you are. It's who you were. And if you want to disagree with me, you can, because lots of people really, really like to tell me how much of a sinner I am all the time. But I will tell you, pay attention to your Bible then. Go and read your Bible. Almost always it is in past tense. But you were, but you were, but you were. It is not you still are. Find that in there for me. You are delighted in. You are loved. And I think about what that does when we try to practice relationships with one another, right? If my identity is in anything else but Christ, you're all a threat to me. Your friends, your family, it's a competition. But if my identity is that I'm a daughter and I'm a priest in the kingdom of God, I'm loved and I'm embraced and I'm championed over and rejoiced over, what threat do people have on me? Why am I threatened by the people around me? I'm secure in who I am and who my identity is. And that affects our relationships, right? It's so important to know your identity. When you know your identity, that changes how you are perceived by people and how you relate to people. I know there's things we wish we could be better at. And I know there's things I wish I could do. I told you I did CrossFit. I don't do it well. I skipped out that part. Right? There's a lot of things, right? And there's a lot of times when people feel holier than you or pray better than you. And like even that stuff, we seem to get us all jammed up in comparing, right? And we, we don't want to do that. We just, we don't want to do that. You need to know where your identity is and it's found in him and him alone. And I also want to point out here that you cannot be a race, a priesthood, a holy nation, or a people by yourself. You cannot be a race by yourself, a priesthood by yourself, a holy nation by yourself, or a people by yourself. So it's important that even in this passage that he's showing you, you cannot accomplish the mission of God on your own. 
Because the mission of God is a people, not a individual. And that to me is powerful. And once you see that, you can see relationality woven through every scripture that you read. It's crazy. So the last thing I wanna highlight, and then I'm giving you some homework, but it's fun homework. And let's face it, some of you will do it and some of you won't, but I'm gonna really encourage you to do it. (laughs) So the last part, looking at this passage, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, who do we proclaim to first? This excellency of Christ. The crazy thing is each other. One another sitting in this room, fellow believers. We proclaim to each other. And this is where I'm gonna bring CrossFit back into it. If you look at what happens, is what they did is they started internally at CrossFit. Praising eternally, loving each other internally, encouraging each other internally, and then it overflowed, right? So CrossFit, they'll gather, they'll work out together. Everyone's always sore, always in pain. Things are hard, they have to encourage each other. And then they start to speak life into one another. And they get to this place where someone's gonna finally say to you, you know, man, Yasmin, you're looking pretty good. You look strong, you look happy, full of life. Oh, thanks, glad you said something. I got my friend time down to two minutes and 30 seconds. I'm feeling great, I'm doing CrossFit. Love and life, you should do CrossFit. Come to my gym, my gym's the best gym. Come check it out, the people are great, everyone's fantastic. They're declaring eternally and it rolls out externally. Do you get what I'm saying? Are you that excited about this church? Or if you're a guest with us today, your church? Do you look that happy and excited? talk about how great the people are here, how you hang out with them all the time and they're so encouraging. And then say, come check out my church. Come check it out. Because they're doing it with CrossFit and we've got Jesus. Why aren't we this excited? Yes, they hurt. Yes, we hurt. Right? There's going to be times that you're sad or in pain or you're grieving. But they circle around each other and encourage each other like the early believers did. Like we should be doing. Like many of us do do. There are people in this church that their friends come and meet me at that next step table. Oh, my friend is Lenny. He told me to come here and check it out today. There are people who are doing that. So, how are we going to practice relationality as we leave here today. Worship team, you can come up. How are we gonna practice community? So this is awesome and it's super easy. Are you ready for it? Dinner. We are going to practice with dinner. Let me give you a quote from a man named Andrew Peterson. Many of you will know him. He writes worship music, sings worship music, has a million of the top songs. This is his quote. So draw up your battle lines, gather around the table, raise a toast to the king and the coming kingdom, and fight back. So your homework. In the next two weeks, I want you to invite a group of Christians over that you like. 
baby steps. Eventually, you may have to have people you don't like at the table, people who aren't Christians, but we're going to start with baby steps. Start by inviting some Christians over that you like that are part of your church family, whether they're families, individuals, kids, whatever, and cook a meal together. This could be, I'm bringing the ground beef and you're bringing the craft dinner and we're going to just mix it together. <laughs> or this could be a barbecue or bacon, um, baking or, well, bacon would be good too, but um, cutting up vegetables together, doing trays, have a barbecue. Just create a sacred space with people that you love. Like at CrossFit, I didn't know one of those souls two years ago. And now we like dress up in tutus for fun. Do you see what I'm saying? Get to know each other. Have fun. Invite somebody over. And your topic of conversation doesn't have to be like straight like Bible study, but you can pray for each other. You can talk about what Jesus is doing in your life, maybe what you need him to do in your life. Your testimony, your background, your family where you've seen him work, where you never see him work, where you need help. Just have a meal together. I don't think it's really hard homework, right? It's not some oppressive legalistic thing that I'm trying to get you to do. The Bible says, come in and enjoy. Experience the love of God, the grace of God together. Really, like good food, talk about Jesus, pray for one another. Let gratitude just wash over you. So if God is all-powerful and rules with might and doesn't care about you, and he's not in relation with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not triune in nature, then dinner doesn't make sense. But since that isn't the case, and he is three in one, Dinner is how we fight back. Really, could it just be that simple? Dinner is how we fight back? It's, you grow with dinner, you grow with people. Have you ever had nights where you just ate and laughed and rejoiced? Man, it changes things. Those moments change things. And so that's your homework. And then I want you to keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Just keep practicing it. And over time, it will shape us and form us, mold us more and more into the people of God. We're designed for relationship, whether you like it or not. That's part of our design. That's part of our purpose. And you know what? It can even be fun. We don't have to be those Christians who are like, what rules do I have to follow now? What can't I do? Who's doing what? Who cares? And who cares? Like, who cares? Just have dinner together. Have dinner. Love one another. Encourage one another. Break bread together. Sounds pretty freaking awesome to me. That's all I got to say. So if anyone's having people for dinner, you know who you need to invite. So let's stand, let's pray, and let's spend some time in worship. So Father God, I thank you so much that we are your people. 
I pray today that you bless each of these men and women and children in the name of Jesus. And I ask that joy will be established in the deepest parts of their soul today, Father. And I pray for anyone who may not be a Christian here today, that if you heard this sermon, uh, we want to invite you into our family to be part of this people. I thank you that we cannot outsin your grace. We cannot outsin what you have done for us. I thank you that you have made room for the broken and the weary and the suffering and the foolish and the silly and the perverse. I thank you, Father. I pray that we would hear today the invitation into this life of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I bless you, holy, holy name, Father. We worship you now. We give thanks for you, Father. We do this all for your beautiful name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.